You're listening to episode 58. This is Grace on Fire. Join your virtual pastor as he offers insight and inspiration into topics we all face. Be empowered. Gain confidence with God's grace so you can face life's most challenging problems. When you integrate faith in every aspect of your life, you can live an extraordinary one for a higher purpose. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan G. Smith. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, your virtual pastor, and my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am back from my vacation, and what is the first thing that I do on vacation? I invite my good friend, Dr. Brian Russell. He is on the show. Welcome, Brian. Glad you're here today. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be back with you. I had a question for you. Are you are you still going with the professor for life or of life? Yeah, you can, I'm still your professor for life. What does that mean? Well, it started off as a joke. When I first started teaching, I'd always tell students, if you ever have a question, as long as you live, you've paid to have me for class and I'll, I'll be your professor for life. And as I've gotten older, I've recognized I want to share some of the wisdom, so I kind of take it as a double meaning. You never get rid of me once you, you invite me in, and I try to, uh, to share things that are, are ultimately helpful for your life as well, so I'm your professor for life. Take it forever for whatever you want it to mean. Oh my gosh, it's coming true on my podcast. Anyways, I can't believe that. <laughs> I don't remember that promise when I took your class almost, uh, I don't know how long ago that was, eight years ago, but uh, we'll take that. Well, that's cool. Well, on the show today, we are back, and the title of the show, you know, you and I have gone back around this, but, you know, and it's a working title, but we've said the new missional Methodism. Now, I've got to say, are we talking about denomination Methodism, or what are we talking about today? No, not at all. We're not talking about denominations. Obviously, the the different churches that call themselves Methodists, they have their roots back to a group of people, the Wesleys, uh, that were made fun of by other people who, who called them Methodists. So Methodism was also ultimate was first of all a way of making fun of people, saying you you have too many methods. But what Wesley the Wesleys did along with their friends, they actually had a group called the Holy Club at Oxford where they gathered together and they did prayers together. They fed the poor, they visited people in prison, they fasted, and so they got picked on for being. Methodists. And so, and essentially, when we're talking about new Methodism, uh, we want to talk about what are some of the habits, tactics hab- um, that we can bring into our lives to do, as, uh, as the show says, to actually design our lives for a higher purpose. If we want to have a higher purpose, we have to prepare ourselves for that higher purpose. Well, you know, a funny thing there, if we go back to the Wesley's there and just look at the history for a moment, because, you know, they were being made fun of for doing methods, um, for trying to embody their beliefs, doing the things that, um, you know, the Bible said. And and yet the problem is, and you know this as well as being a theologian, and we, we could talk about this, but sometimes Christian faith can be relegated to an abstract head game so that everything about the Christian faith rests in ultimately either your salvation um, or it's, you know, rests in uh, your identity or whatever you do on Sunday morning. But that's not what we're talking about on the show, because what we're actually arguing, is just like, and, I, and we, we, we talked about this earlier uh, when we were doing the pre-show prep, and I think it's really starting to stick with me, and that is, is that you will hear people say, I practice Buddhism, and that's become in vogue. In fact, the, one of the first things um, that I heard, I had just gone to this synod meeting uh, which is a, a boring clergy meeting 
And um, for those of you who want to know what clergy do, we go to things called synod meetings, and they're incredibly boring and long, but some people think they're wonderful. But anyways, so I went and was, I went at the airport and I have my clergy collar on, all right, because I was required to wear it. So what do you do? There's two things. There's one advantage about wearing a clergy collar in the airport. Either you will get really screened heavily or they'll just, you know, wave you through. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was waved through. Well, anyways, I go to the car rental place and um, I have my collar on. And so the car rental, there's this young girl and she's asking, well, you know, why are you here? Because we were in Binghamton, New York. You know, why else do you go and visit Binghamton, New York? And um, anyhow, she, I said, well, we're here for a clergy conference. And, and I said, I'm an Anglican minister, Christian. She goes, oh, yeah. Well, um, I'm spiritual, but not religious, which I have actually never encountered someone who said that in, in such an explicit terms. Now, I've been told that that's how people describe themselves, um, but I've actually never encountered that someone almost like a textbook reaction says, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I said, oh, that, well, that's interesting. And um, so I said, well, what, you know, when you say you're spiritual, what are you? And she goes, well, I practice Buddhism. Now, I thought that was funny because we know Buddhism as one of the religions of the world, and she used the word practice, and she used it in the context of, I'm spiritual, not religious, but then I practice, and what religion is, is often a set of practices. And so, I thought, well, you know, in this show, if Christianity, particularly evangelicals like I am, one of the problems that we have is that we have this abstract theology and we don't know how to live it out. And even if we don't know how to live it out, we don't even know uh, what it looks like Monday through Friday. Does it mean that we just are good to our neighbors or we love God or, or we, we sing praise and worship songs? What, what does that even mean? And I don't know about you, but as I get into my 40s and I've met guys in their 50s, a lot of them, like attorneys, these are very well-adjusted people. A lot of them act as if they're bored with Christianity. They, they're, not, they're not unwilling to walk away from it, but they're bored with it. Like, what else is there? Do I have just more charismatic experiences or, or what? And so on the show today, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to shift our thinking a bit. Instead of looking at this from a perspective of, you know, what do you believe in terms of salvation? But what is there in terms of the Christianity that gives a robust definition of life? That's kind of where I'm thinking about that. That may be totally what you're not thinking, but <laughs> hang in there with us, folks. So on the show today, we're going to start getting into some street theology. And we're going to, we're going to first of all, look at some biblical text. And uh, for those of you that's, that's uh, academic speak, we're going to look at the Bible and we're going to look at particular passages. And then we're going to get into a tip of the week. We've got a great book recommendation. And then also we'll talk a little bit more about the new Methodism. So anyways, uh, I'm super uh, excited about this. So let's go ahead and get into the show, some street theology. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. Well, like we said, that our show goal here today is to make the argument that you need habits and tactics in life to function at the highest level possible to operate in the way God intended. So, you know, Brian, here's the question that I have. How do you know the way God intended you? I mean, or the way that God intended for you to live? I mean, where do we go? 
Well, I think the answer to that ultimately is going to be Scripture. I mean, as uh, evangelicals, as followers of Jesus, God's revealed his plans, his purposes, the way that he works in the world uh, through the scriptures. And so, again, that's what I'm, that's my faith commitment. That's where I come from, that we have the scriptures to guide us. And so I always say that the scriptures are ultimately our map that gets us through life. It doesn't just prepare us for the end of our life, but it's actually our, our roadmap uh, through life. So it's our, our map. It's our map for people on mission. It's a map for people that want to live as Jesus calls us to live. It's a, a map for people who are hungry and desperate for the, for the things that only God can do through his grace and his love. So we have to understand what the Bible actually says first before we can actually get into the, to the application. So you've got this quote on here. I love this quote, and I, I want to build this out. So you have by G.K. Chesterton. First of all, who's that guy again? He was an English uh, scholar who lived at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, who, who was very influential and has written some uh, key books, uh, books like Orthodoxy. I'm not precisely sure where this, which book come out of this quote, but he was a, a thinker in, uh, from England. He was a thinker from England. So anyways, it, you know, and if he was alive today with a cool accent, everybody would probably be watching him on YouTube. Um, but anyhow, what we see here, and I love this, it says, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. I love that. And I, I love I love that thought here that it's been left untried. I'm kind of curious as to what does that say to you? I think what it says to me is that it's a way to, to answer the problem, why aren't Christians any different from every other person that you meet in the world? And what I mean that is not to make a judgment, because obviously there are saints, and we've seen persons who really reflect the love of Jesus and all things that they do. But why, when you look at statistics, why is it that in the United States, for example, that uh, Christians are more likely to be uh, racist than non-Christians? Uh, why, you know, things like that. Why are Christian marriages no more likely to stay together than non-Christian marriages? And those are what statistics tell us. And so you, you ask yourself, what's, what's going on? Is the problem Christianity? Is it somehow not true? And a quote like this suggests not so much that's not true. So it's not the problem isn't Christianity, it's that it's never actually been implemented. Yeah, so like, in, in other words, and maybe another way of saying it is, we've, we've only scratched the surface. Typically, we've only scratched the surface of what we do in churches each and every week. And, and we're, we're actually defining Christianity by that surface. And yet we're leaving on the table so much more rich depth Right. Yeah, and think of it like a, your favorite sports team. Uh, let's say that you know I'm trying to think of a team that no one will be offended by. So let's say I'm a Minnesota Twins fan, <laughs> and so I go buy a Minnesota Twins jersey, pop it on. Right. And if that's all I do, have I suddenly become a baseball player? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people put on the Christian cloth clothes, but the inside. They haven't done anything to make themselves uh, any different than they were on the last team that they decided to play for. So the idea here is like, you know, sometimes we focus on the exterior aspect of... Or the titles or yeah, names. Yeah, the titles. Or, yeah. And, and yet we're not understanding the, the depths and the riches here. And when we're talking about depths and riches, we're not talking about just going in and understanding more theology, are we? 
not at all, because just knowing things, I mean, Jesus had some pretty harsh things, but that's a temptation. Sometimes we, we, uh, we substitute the things that we know or the right phrases that we use. And again, not, we're not against learning. We're not against using great vocabulary, but we can substitute those for what, really what Christianity is ultimately about. What's it about? It's about a relationship with a God who loves us enough that he died for us and was raised from the dead. And so what does it look like to be in relationship with this God? Is it just to say that we are or to mouth the right theological words, or is it to begin to uh, align our lives so that we begin to reflect the character of the God that loved us first? Well, why don't we do this? Let's look at a couple of the scriptures that you have here. Yeah. And, um, and we've got a lot here. So why don't you just pick a couple and let's go ahead and walk through it. Yeah. yeah basically I, I wanted to just grab some texts and persons can look, people can look these up in more depth if they want to read them. But if you just start with, say, where the great commandment comes in the Old Testament, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And that's a, a familiar passage. We know that one. Jesus quotes it. But what's interesting are the words that come after it. Because what's the response? And again, up until this point, Moses has articulated the fact that God already loves God's people. He's brought them out of Egypt in the Old Testament or as Christians. We know that Jesus has died on the cross for us, that he's been raised from the dead, that he offers us the spirit. So God's already said, I love you. So this is, is a command. How do you relate to that kind of God? You relate by loving God back. And it's interesting, verses 6 and 7, 8 and 9 of chapter 6, right after this, it goes through Moses' instructions to the Israelites. And I'm not going to read every passage, but I think this is a good one. Uh, Moses says, okay, so how do you love God? Keep these words that I'm commanding you to today in your heart. So in other words, internalize scripture. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your, a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, there's some hyperbole here. Uh, you know, we're not literally supposed to write scripture all over our bodies, though you can see some people have done that historically. But the key things are here is listen to the conversation. This starts in the home. We're supposed to teach our children the ways of the Lord as habits, as, as tactics. We're supposed to talk about them. We're supposed to live them out. And notice if you do something when you rise or when you lie down or when you're at home or when you're away, that means you're always doing it, unless you're sleeping. So you're either awake or and out. And also notice it's both private and public, doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's probably talking about the city gates, which is a very public thing. So this is these are just essentially private, public reminders of the people that we're supposed to be. And so these are habits. And then you know we can go on, and you can look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, where God calls Joshua and commissions him to replace Moses. And the key thing, he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. And he tells him, you're going to inherit all of this land. And what's the one thing that Joshua is supposed to do? It's not that he has to become a great warrior. It's that he simply has to meditate on scripture day and night. And that's going to lead him forward. Psalm 1 does the same thing. What's the difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person. What's the, what's the difference between a successful, prosperous person and someone who isn't? Psalm 1 says he meditates on the law of the Lord 
day and night. He's reflecting on it, and it's his delight. And that's a key thing, too. And we talk about all these habits. It's not just cranking out, oh, I got to read scripture or I got to pray. It's find delight in those things as a way of life. Um, then you can go to Daniel, and these are just representatives, but if you look at the book of Daniel, he and his friends, what did they do? They practiced certain kinds of diets as part of their faith. It wasn't just the Daniel diet so they could get healthy. It was they had specific foods that connected them back with their homeland, that connected them with their identity as God's people. So they ate certain kinds of things. Daniel ultimately got thrown in the lion's den for what? Because he prayed. He had a, a, a ritual practice of praying at certain times of the day that, that shaped him. And he did that regardless of what his circumstances were. So those are some Old Testament examples. And we could do some other ones. And then you just look at Jesus. What did Jesus continually do in his ministry? You know, we can say Jesus just walked around and did cool stuff and taught, but he always withdrew from the crowds and even sometimes from his disciples to do what? Practice silence, practice prayer, to re-engage, to allow his soul to be nourished by these habits, again, that allowed Jesus to be Jesus. And then Paul, get into 1 Corinthians Right after he does a passage on how important it is to connect the gospel to other people, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, and listen to this athletic metaphor. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are, but we an imperishable one. So here's Paul. And again, he doesn't go into specifics what he's talking about here, but he's assuming that as persons that are connected with God through Jesus, that we're going to train ourselves and live in a certain way, just like an athlete who's preparing to run a race gets ready. I mean, I, I mean, Jonathan, you've run some races. Um, I mean, did you just show up and go for it? Absolutely. I showed up and <laughs> you it was won. A, and you it, won, right? It was amazing. Because I finished in a thousandth place. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you want to do well in a race, we just have to prepare. And so Paul grabs a hold of that. Um, I mean, Paul also uses a military uh, and a farming and an athletic metaphor altogether in Second Timothy two four to seven. It says share in the suffering as a good soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Then he kind of says, kind of cryptically, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Yeah, so, that's, that's one of the things that I loved about that verse, is that, that little the last line where he's, so you think about that. <laughs> well, so, you know, sorry, so let's, let's slow down here because you've thrown... Uh, some scriptures at us, and and that's good because I I, I love this overarching um, uh, narrative that you've given us because over and over and over again we're seeing that there's an applied aspect to the faith. In other words, it's not just um, your, your your faith isn't just about salvation at the end of life, but there's an aspect of everything you do every single day. And yes, you're right, Paul. I think Paul most familiarly. He gives us this wonderful um, illustration of a soldier in athletics, mixing those two things together. And the key word there that comes out of that is discipline. Yes. Right? It's disciplines of what you're doing 
each and every day. That is, is that going all the way back to what Moses and, and Deuteronomy 6, is that there's a daily discipline, a daily aspect to Christianity that unless it's being uh, implemented in your life, that you're missing out on something. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not necessarily a Christian. We're not talking about salvation issues here then. So if we're not talking about salvation issues, what are we talking about? We're actually talking about, I would say, to use a fancy word, um, sanctification. We're talking about what does it look like now that we've entered into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ? We're talking about growth because God calls us to live as the people that we were created to be. And so the question is, uh, how do you grow into that, especially since the scriptures continuously call us to grow? You know, Jesus' whole ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're supposed to continually realign ourselves. Paul talks about, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's in Philippians chapter 3. So this idea that we're supposed to move on in the faith, we're supposed to go on towards the grace that God has already shared with us. And so we're talking about how do you do that? And just like, um, I know someday I want to have a six-pack, Jonathan. I've been waiting for like 48 years so far. Are you talking about a six-pack of beer? Oh, no, I'm not. I'm talking about a six-pack abs. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, six-pack beer doesn't help the six-pack abs. But, you know, and I don't know why I don't get it. I, I do, you know, I do 10 or 15 sit-ups, I don't know, two or three times a day. You do 10 uh, or 15 two, I mean, three times I mean, a two day. or three times a week. Oh. You know, so why don't I have a six-pack? You know, I, I yeah. and I eat whatever I want still. Yeah. Um, and so I'm waiting for that six-pack to pop out. But, you know, so, in, you know, what do you do if you're going to have a six-pack though, right? I'm going to eat a certain way. I'm going to have to do some serious ab exercises. I'm going to have to do consistent things. And, here, and what I found in my life, I mean, you're writing a book now. And you know what my advice always is, is just to try to write a couple hundred words every day. And if you do that, over a course of a year, you're going to have a whole book. I mean, if, if anybody who's listening wants to write a book, write 300 words a day. At the end of one year, you're going to have over 100,000 words. And that's actually could be two, and it could even be three books. So it's um, kind of um, uh, consistent actions done over time yield extraordinary results. And so if we want to embody this life, you want to practice the persons who have come before us. And you know, Tony Robbins likes to say success leaves clues. Look at the clues that persons that we admire from the Bible have done. Look at their lives. What have they done? They've done practices that allowed them to be on in the moment for God. And I think that the way that we could summarize at least this segment here is that life doesn't happen, or, or let me, or we could actually maybe say it another way, is that life is going to happen. The question is, is what kind of life? And that we are actually far more capable of structuring our lives, that we have far more power to look at our lives and to rise above our circumstances, not to be defined by them, not even to be defined by our appetites, but to actually to move to a place of discipline where we are overcoming even these besetting issues that we have. So you were talking about you always want a six pack, right? And I've, you know, I went on to a weight loss uh, regimen over the last couple of years. And one of the first things I realized, I was like, you know, I just eat garbage and I have to stop. <laughs> I mean, I just do. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. And I, I go by, you know, what is it? Five guys. And I'm thinking, hello, there's a light that goes off and it just brings me right in. But then I realize something. That behavior is actually in conflict with my set goal. Now, the question is, is why do I keep going back? 
And we know that there's, there is a, uh, what I like to call resistance, uh, which was Stephen Pressfield's word um, out of his book, The War of Art. Um, but, you know, Christians, we call it sin. Paul called it the law of sin and death. Um, but there is this evil, there's this chaos in the world that is constantly warring against us. And so the factor of discipline then is, is that, and this comes back, is that any person that has ever tried to be an athlete or has tried to perform, you're going to encounter resistance every single day, right? Yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. Yeah, and so that means then there's an aspect here where we're using the word discipline, that we should look at discipline as, as, as not as a negative word, but actually as a positive word, and that these disciplines are going to help us crafting your life for a higher purpose. What I ended up in my book called Lifecraft, by the way, uh, you didn't ask, but I've made some significant process on there, progress on it, although I did take a week off last week. Had to do that. And you have to take some space out. And, and I think another way to talk about the point that we're trying to make, and I like that idea of resistance, is this, is in life, there's certain things that we can control, there's certain things that we can't control. Yeah. And life is going to happen to us in some ways. There's things that we can't control. We can't always control the traffic. We can't control, I was in Alabama the other day and my plane broke on the runway. So I missed my next flight. I had no control over that. And so the key thing is, is to not worry about the things that we can't control so much, but think about what we can control and what these disciplines, tactics, practices focus on are things that we actually can control. And when you focus and nurture what you can control, you can respond in those moments where there's no control in ways that ultimately honor the Lord, which is oftentimes those are the places where it's the hardest to live Christianly. When you're stuck in traffic, when someone cuts you off, when there's a huge line and you just feel like you've gotten treat, treated unjustly, if you're not ready for those moments, it's easily just to sink back into your old ways. Yes, and um, I've certainly sinked back in my old ways. I could tell you some stories there, but we'll leave that to a side. And I think that we could summarize it this way, this section today, is that it simply stated is that the Bible makes it clear that there's an active process involved in the everyday life that we are required to engage in. And when we ignore that aspect of life, we are actually doing that to our own detriment. Yeah, and just to bring it back full circle, and that's what Chesterton's talking about, it's not so much that Christianity has been tried and found wanting or failed, it's that it's been found difficult and we just didn't untry it because we didn't prepare ourselves for it. Well, let's let's kind of move on there because I yeah. think that we've got some other stuff that we want to cover here today. And um, but thank you for bringing this you know to our attention here because I think that ultimately that the left untried is why you know as a listener why would you leave things untried? Why would you do that if there is a possibility here of crafting your life for a higher purpose? If there is an aspect of bringing meaning and purpose above your circumstances. I'm not talking about living the life of your dreams, and I'm not even talking about living a life where you get rich and all that. I mean, those all, the, all those things are wonderful, but what if you could live at the end of your life, look back at your life, and say, you know what? I'm happy with where my life concluded, and I, I have very little regrets. Not, I mean, you're always going to have a regret in your life, but maybe you regret the right things instead of the wrong things. And I think that that's ultimately what the Bible is saying is that, hey, make the most out of every single day that you have. You're only given one day at a time. You don't, you're not given a lifetime. You're given one day at a time. And so what you do within that, really, you're not even 24 hours. It's more like 16 hours. You know, you're given roughly 16 hours in your life to make the most of it. So why not start today? 
And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week. And on our Tip of the Week today, we're going to be introducing to you a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. It's written by a guy named Dallas Willard. Now, Dallas Willard is one of those great thinkers. I actually think he lived in California, right? Yeah, he was actually a professor at at USC, a secular university, University of Southern California in philosophy, but he was also a Baptist, Southern Baptist pastor. So he thought deeply about his faith in California. In California. That's pretty amazing, actually, that he was at a secular university, a philosopher, as well as a Baptist pastor. And so I know that you've been, you've been really hot on this book. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the book today? Yeah, what this book does is Willard starts with that G.K. Chesterton quote, actually, and then he talks about what does it look like to do the things that we've been talking about, to open yourselves up to historic practices. This is one of the things that sometimes we cheat ourselves on in the church as we look back on the past and think it was primitive, but he essentially re-articulates, um, re-argues for things that the deep-rooted practices and habits that Christians have done for thousands of years that have nurtured the saints in their faith. And so they can live... Um, you know, you talked about the difference between living the life of your dreams, but practices that allow you to live the life of God's dreams, ultimately, to be the persons that God created us to be. So he goes through um, biblically. He first argues that we need to have habits. Then he gives biblical basis for the habits and how God works in our lives. Because, again, God can work in all kinds of different ways, but God seems to work through these means of grace that he's given us through these practices and then he goes through and essentially the second half of the book is he goes through how to actually do things like fasting like living with frugality prayer scripture reading all the different things that we associate with christian practices but he uh, re-engages these things and brings a lot of energy in the book it's uh it's a several hundred pages and i would say it's uh it's not a it's a slow read it's not a difficult read. It's one of those books where if you like to underline things like I do, that you can underline, unfortunately, almost every sentence. It's that good. It's like he's crafted almost a masterpiece that almost essentially models the thing. It's called The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Understanding How God Changes Lives. Dallas Willard. Yeah, so I and I've I know this book, and um I confess that I have not read the entire thing. I actually own the book myself. But you're right, it is so rich, and uh, so if you are looking for a, a resource that can just help nurture you, it, can this be part of devotional reading as well? Yeah, it could be devotional reading, because I, I consider devotional reading, you know, you want to read some scripture, but you should always be reading something else that pushes you along in your faith, and this is a book that's, that's going to stand the test of time. So that book is The Spirit of Disciplines by Dallas Willard. You can pick that up at any one of the retailers. And now it's time for our feature presentation. And on our feature presentation, we're going to unpack this idea of the new Methodism. And honestly, I love this idea. And when you and I start talking about it, we actually we were actually going to record this show back in April. And um, we talked about how you were making some observations in the marketplace. Uh, guys like Tim Ferriss. Um, I noticed that John, uh, John, what was his name? John Lee Demas or something like that. He's the entrepreneur on fire guy. And he, he's really exploded. And uh, he's now peddling a journal that he wants everybody to do. And then uh, I also noticed that another guy named Michael Hyatt, he's got a, a journal that he's now uh, peddling. And the whole idea here is that all of these guys 
that are in the marketplace are engaging in methods. They're engaging in these practices as a way of shaping and informing everyday life. And so you actually, because you're coming out of this uh, uh, this particular background, you're like, hey, this is this is stuff that the church has been doing all along. And so why don't you kind of share a little bit about what the observation was that you were making? Yeah, one of the books I, I, I mentioned earlier, one of the podcasts that we did together was a book called Tools of the Titans by Tim Ferriss. And, and Ferriss had interviewed all of these high performers, billionaires, uh, famous athletes, famous uh, actors, actresses, persons at the top of their game. And what he found was 80% of this group, and again, maybe there's a selection bias on the persons that he interviewed, but he found out that 80% of these folks practiced uh, transcendental meditation, for example. A lot of these persons do fasting, not so much for religious reasons, but they call intermittent fasting as a way to control their bodies. Uh, Ferris also always peddles stoicism and the stoics fasted and exercise and journaling like you just mentioned and so i was thinking to myself well all these high performers and this happens in all of our lives whenever you begin a job a new journey a career or maybe get a promotion or you try a new challenge we all have to struggle because sometimes we feel like we're not enough or we get what they call the imposter syndrome. We don't think we're good enough. And we're, there's, a, there's a sense on the inside that I have to grow into something more. So my sense was all these really successful people were recognizing something about their own brokenness at some level and were embracing what they considered secular habits that would allow them to function fully. And again, I th- immediately thought to myself is, wow, these persons have no idea of the treasures that we have in the gospel, the things that God has already given us, the things that have been in place for thousands of years in the rich history of Judaism first and then ultimately in the Christ-following movement. And so that caught my attention, and I thought, wow. And I come out of the Methodist tradition, so I thought, these guys are the new Methodists, and it's a secular movement. We need to recapture that and recapture the sense of of what was at the heart of the Wesleyan revival. And again, I'm not saying everybody needs to be a Methodist in terms of church, but there's, we can all learn something from what the Wesleys did. They changed 18th century England, and, it's, and that revival started in them doing these practices together in their little holy clubs, small groups, journaling, taking care of the poor, reading scripture, fasting, sitting in silence, uh, doing the liturgical prayers. These were all, uh, they were Church of England people at the time, and they started with that and those practices along with a high altitude dynamic encounter with Jesus unleashed a revival that, again, it's uh, historians even say it probably prevented a revolution from taking place in England because the Methodists reached the poor and empowered them and changed their lives in dramatic ways. Yeah, and I think that's remarkable. And I love the whole story of the Wesleys because uh, as an Anglican, I look at the Wesleys as, as you know, part of my tribe as well. And the real challenge is, is that if you go back to the Church of England at that time, you know, what was taking place is that people were going to church, they were reading the liturgies, you know, and then they were leaving. And that was it. And then there was a, a you know, a literacy rate at the time. And so, you know, the poor were listening to it and they were saying, man, I'm not even sure what that is or it's just not making any sense. And the Wesleys came in and they, and they, you know, John Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. And yet there was something about... Uh, his life that dramatically displays 
you know, what can happen when you begin to engage at the at a life at a higher level. And so one of the things that I'd love to do is you, you have from Willard here, and I love this. It says a, a successful performance at a moment of crisis rests largely and essentially upon the depths of a self wisely and rigorously prepared in the totality of its being, mind and body. I want to read that again because that is just rich. It's rich words here. A successful performance at a moment of crisis rests largely and essentially upon the depths of a self wisely and rigorously prepared in the totality of its being. So Willard unpacks an idea here and a couple of ideas, and he talks about successful performance, and then he introduces a crisis, and then he says that how a person performs at a moment of crisis, and I guess we probably need to understand what a crisis is, but uh, how that person performs at that moment is essentially based upon all of the preparation that he did prior to that moment, right? That's exactly what he's saying. And so what we're actually talking about is that these habits, this methodism, all of these things that these guys are employing, it's not an end to itself, right? Right, right. It's it's preparing us for, it's again, many times during a day, it's really easy to be a Christian. Your Christianity shows itself in the moments where it's not easy, when you're tempted. You know, like I always joke as an Old Testament professor, I love the Old Testament laws because I almost never break them. Like I've never broken, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. I have a 100% performance rate on that. But, <laughs> but I can read other parts of the Bible where the commands are harder. Yeah. And am I ready to step up and live that way? And so preparation, um, the, the moment of crisis are, is when your faith collides with either a struggle you have in your own life or with the values of our culture, or it's literally just a crisis moment. Like somebody has cut you off in traffic and if you have a temper problem, are you going to blow? You know, if everybody's being nice to you, you're probably not going to get mad, but you're going to get mad when something triggers you. So when a trigger comes, have you prepared in such a way that God through the spirit can live through you and point to Jesus over against just showing your own brokenness. That's what I think he's talking about. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that the, I think that's the, the principle that he's, that he is uh, developing, but I think that we can take it further. Yeah. You know, I think that we can actually take that principle into every aspect of life. That is, you know, for example, I set up here and we're recording this podcast. Well, this podcast didn't just happen. You know, I had to go through, I had to learn how to use microphones. I had to learn how to use all the technology, but then it came through the practice of doing it, the practice of sitting behind a microphone and in talking and talking with our audience and then talking with you, et cetera, all those things that go into it in order to get to this moment that we can actually successfully record a podcast and, and, uh, and publish it. So, you know, this is this is life, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's about the goal, and I think that's what you said too. Like the goal of this right now is we want to have a great, helpful podcast. Yeah. And so all the things that took place before this moment serve that, and this gets back maybe to living your life for a higher purpose. What is that higher purpose? Say what it is, and then ask yourself backwards: What do I need to do every day so that I can live for that higher purpose? Yeah, and I think the ultimate purpose that you talked about was living God's dreams for us. And, 
and that goes back to your understanding of God. And, and so this, you, you can, you can kind of get into a cyclical, but I prefer a spiral idea here. The sure. deeper that you go into this, the more it'll reveal about yourself, the more about yourself that's revealed to you, the more that you can begin to apply these principles and abstracts. And that, and I think that that's the, the life, uh, what is it? Plato said the life lived unexamined is not worth living. And, and that's, and that's a great quote. And, and in a sense, wherever you are, you find yourself today listening to this, whether you feel like you're close to becoming the person God wants you to be or whether you're far away, it's about getting back to basics, too, is what we're talking about. Because in a sense, this is we're not telling you anything new today. These are things that have been going on for thousands of years, but it reminds me of the great basketball coach from UCLA. He passed away a few years ago, John Wooden. If you don't know John Wooden, he's perhaps the greatest coach of any sport ever through using his... His tactics, he won 10 national championships over 12 years. And so you can imagine if you, you're coaching UCLA, you've already won five or six championships. You, it was always easy to get good players. So like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played for him. Bill Walton, again, these are older players, but these were some of the greats that he was able to recruit. And why could he recruit them? Because they knew if they came, they were going to be champions. So he got the best players, but he still turned everyone into a, all these great players into a team, and he did it. And it's kind of funny, but what would you think the first practice would be? Uh, he sat these guys down. These guys had already won great games. They were already better basketball players than most of us will ever be or that we've even seen. But he always, the first practice every year, he'd have a little kid come in and he'd show a little kid how to put socks on his feet because he very carefully pulled him up so there wouldn't be any creases. And you all know if you put a sock on wrong, if you've ever run, you feel it. He, he showed them how to put their, their socks on perfectly so they wouldn't get blisters. Because if you get blisters, you can't run around. And then he taught the little boy how to tie his shoes. And he'd have them put relace every time so they were really tight and then use a double knot. It had to be a double knot because somebody might step on your shoestring out in the court. And if you did, you wouldn't be able to help your team. So he's started every season with just basics and then he made the practices his goal wasn't to worry about the other team he never talked about winning he made his practices harder than the games would ever be and so the games then when the players showed up to play the games they were already better than all the other teams because they had been harder before the games and think about that so the point here is and Willard's point is if we set ourselves up when tough times come, we just plug into the habits that we've already done and we live naturally instead of um, having to step up into something. We just, if we'd set up the right practices for ourselves as Christians, we're ready for when life comes to be Jesus' hands, his feet, his mouthpieces in those moments. Yeah, and, I, and those moments will come and uh, we can expect them. So why don't we do this? Because you've already used a couple of sports analogies, but. Um, again, you're quoting Dallas Willard here in, in our notes that we're looking at today. And by the way, if you're listening to the podcast today, um, we'll have some of these uh, quotes and notes up on uh, our show notes on jonathangsmith.com forward slash episode 58 or forward slash 58. But we can go or GLF. I'm, I'm going to get it right here. Ladies and gentlemen, just hang in there with me. I'm still on island time. But what it says is that a baseball player who expects to excel in the game without exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than the Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise and godly living. In other words, as you just said, how we respond in life's moments 
are as greatly dependent upon what we've prepared to be. And it's not going to just happen. And it's certainly not going to just happen by going to church on Sunday mornings. That this is practicing Christianity every single day in the practice in the disciplines of Christianity. So you actually have a list here of uh, about nine activities. And I'm just kind of curious, how did you arrive to this list? And we'll, we'll go into them. Well, let me just read to them. So it's food, exercise. You also have here a discipline of find what works for you, which I think is great. Uh, a prayer of liturgy, scripture, silence, fasting, journaling, and small group. But where does, I mean, is this all stuff that the Bible talks about? Yeah, these are all parts of, 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 of the scriptures. Again, the Bible doesn't ultimately say go exercise, but Paul does say that it's of some value. So I started with food and exercise in a sense, because if we don't get our eating habits right and exercise the body, uh, we're going to ultimately damage the spirit because those things aren't really separated. And so we need to have a good base and our health is important. If we want to live the lives that God wants us to live, we need to practice elements of good health. Again, you can eat whatever, all the perfect things, and it doesn't necessarily going to prevent you from ever getting sick or having a health problem, but exercise and a good diet is a good baseline, keeps our, our, us balanced chemically, keeps our hormones balanced, it gives us endurance, it gives us energy. So those things are hinted at in Scripture. Food is for sure. Um, the rest of these things are really the classic activities that do come out of the Bible. So the you know, liturgical practices, uh, uh, Scripture, prayer silence, fasting, um, small groups. And I did add journaling. That's kind of, an, uh, um, kind of a personal small group. You end up being a small group with yourself when you have a journal. But those are all things that can be, that are either long-time Christian practices or explicitly in the scriptures. And, the, the, um, and you know, we could, almost every one of these could be its own podcast, I suppose. Yeah, but I think that, you know, when you look at this list of things, this is sort of a baseline that says, Hey, here you here you go. Yeah, and we can actually kind of break these things down in, in, in a number of ways. But you know, one of the things that stands out to me is silence. I mean, why why would you why would you put silence there? Silence to me is an absolutely critical piece. This in my for my own life, I've begun practicing silence now for for uh, eighteen months, and and readers might kind of find it funny. I actually set a timer now. I'm up to nine minutes. I do nine minutes every morning and I'm going to start adding about 30 seconds every week. I want to get up to 20 minutes. And so basically the work that I do, it's high demand. I'm getting emails all the time. I have to go to meetings all the time and I have to think all the time. And sometimes it's really hard to shut down from all the stress. And I found and that my day is better if I, in the morning when I do some exercise and I usually pray and then I journal and then I sit in silence and the goal essentially isn't to pray. It isn't it's just to be. And I just try to sit there. Um, and it doesn't mean I don't think that's crazy. Um, but what I just try to do is I just try to relax, take some deep breaths and just let my body just be. And that ultimately primes me. And what's amazing is some of the best ideas that I get for books or even for this podcast, some of these ideas are when I'm sitting in silence, something will just pop in my head. And I'm guessing that's how God works with us sometimes by creating space. Because I mean, I wonder, maybe God tries to talk to all of us sometimes and we don't ever hear it because 
we're busy with our cell phones. Uh, with uh, and, and again, modern life, uh, beyond just what I said about work pressure, think about cell phones, social media, all the things that make our life, I'm putting quotation marks, better, ultimately distract us and can drive us crazy, especially if you just have hyperactive minds. And again, I know that maybe, maybe mine's more hyper than others, but some of you out there probably can connect with that. But silence just breaks you out of that and allows you to re-engage with the world. Yeah, I, and I, I can tell you that in times where I've, I, I would say that I've never thought about it as practicing silence, and, and now I'm intrigued, and I think I'm going to try it out. But what I want to ask you is that you said you've been doing this for 18 months now. Can you look back at that 18 months and say, wow, I'm so glad now that I started implementing that practice? Absolutely. I have to say it's been life changing. It's been one. And, I, and you know, if the listeners know I'm a I'm a seminary professor. Uh, I've started preaching when I was 19. So it's I'm 48 now. So I've been doing this kind of thing for a long time. I've been tried to be on fire. I've planted churches. I've read the Bible who knows how many times I, I've written books. I write Sunday school lessons, devotional stuff. And I have to say all the practices I've ever done have never well, I'm not, this is going to be an exaggeration because obviously reading scriptures helped me, but the thing that's really helped me grow the last couple of, of years has been the silence. And one of the things that it's actually helped me is to become non-reactive in the sense of recognizing that if I, you know, to, to not worry about things that I can't control. And it's helped me, my, my blood pressure has gone down. Because I check my blood pressure a lot because it's in my family. My blood pressure is like down 10 points. And the only thing I can figure out, because my job is more stressful than it's ever been. Um, I have teenage kids. I mean, I got my blood pressure going up, right? Um, but it, it's been this silence and calmness. And I find myself not instantly reacting. I have the ability to catch myself like I never used to. And the only thing that's actually changed has been this practice. So it definitely works and it's just as a personal testimony i tell everybody they need to start doing it. and again i'm just gonna and, and the other thing it does spiritually uh, beyond just non-reactive is things will come up in your mind and that's where the calmness comes from because i've basically well this, this might turn your your folks off but i've had to face my demons because when you sit in silence the demons come out and I don't mean real demons, but I mean the things that really bother you. And then the key thing is when I come out of the silence, I go back to the journal and I write down what's bothering me. But it comes out of that. And yeah, that's it's, been healing. You know, that's, that's, that's incredible insight. So let, let, me, let me see if I understand this. You wake up. You read scripture. Well, I wake up and about an hour later, I've got the kids off to school. I got lunches packed, just like a lot of the folks out there. Then I get my time. So I wake, wake up, go crazy for an hour. Then I stop before I go back to go get my rest of my day going. I got you. So uh, you're like me. So you have the demands in. Yeah, thanks. Et cetera. You have wonderful kids, but they do take time. Yeah, they do. And so, but you're what you're saying, and I'm just trying to get your liturgy here. So you, you do scripture you pray and then you do silence or do you journal before the silence and after it okay i i first i always walk or run so i do the exercise first um then i uh relax i usually do some stretching to to, to prepare myself and then i sit um with my journal and i write down three or four things that i'm thankful for and then i go into the silence and then following the silence you go back to your journal. Yes, and that's when I write down what 
seems to be bothering me. And the key thing is you want to have a journal. This is a combination of practice here. You can't be embarrassed about what's bothering you. No matter how horrible it is, you just got to own it. That's what I mean by the demons. So maybe your kids are just driving you crazy and you have the thought, I wish I never would have had my kids. Um, again, not advocating that or saying that's in my journal, but I mean, I'm just trying to think of something that would be really awful that I can share on, on there, but something like that. But right, be honest with yourself on what's bothering you. Maybe you're scared. Uh, maybe you're afraid of your debts. Maybe you're afraid that of the presentations, but just own it. And that releases it somehow. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I actually, I know that's true. Because when you take something internal and then you begin to externalize it, you can suddenly now evaluate it objectively. And I don't want to rationalize this. That's part of it, though. But there is an aspect of that externalization of these ideas where it actually reduces the venom sometimes. And it's actually a way of catharsis of just kind of living these things out. So I love that because, you know what I heard you say, and I'm not even sure you're aware that you said it, but you said that some of your best ideas came out of silence, but also your demons. So it's a both. So if we're not doing silence, and Jesus, he exercised silence considerably. I mean, that was all throughout the narratives of, of the Gospels. But that's, that, that silence there, that time where you're just allowing your mind and your spirit, your soul to process is, I mean, if we're not doing that, then we are, we are literally, and I want to say this, but you know, we're really subjecting ourselves to our own slavery. I think that's a great way to say it because maybe the great ideas are sitting underneath our deepest fears. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally see that. And that goes back to the, that goes back to all the things that we've said previously and that, so what silence does, and and we could talk about all of these things, but I I really thought thought this was the most fascinating one because it's so counterintuitive because we are not, we do not give ourselves permission, particularly if you're mom and dad with lots of kids rolling around, high demand jobs tight schedules if we're not factoring in and you only said like nine minutes i mean you're like i'm up to nine minutes of silence what did you start off with if you know it's it's hard to even do one minute when you start if you have a hyperactive brain because it's just just brutal and sometimes it's hard to even get to nine so i started with one or two minutes got up to five for a long time and uh, again the key thing is not to set a stopwatch but if you want to just block off a time set a timer that'll beep when you're at a certain point, because you don't want to just sit there forever. And believe it, it's kind of funny. I found mentally this helped me because when I used to, I used to do it with a stopwatch and I'd only do it. I'd, I think I've been gone for 20 minutes and it was like a minute and a half. And then I was just worried about wonder how long it was. So when I set a timer, it was good for me because I thought, okay, the timer is going to go off eventually. So I just need to own this. And I was able to concentrate. And again, the thing with nine minutes, sometimes nine minutes goes by like it's 15 seconds. But a lot of times it feels like it's an hour and it's almost torturous sometimes just to sit there, but you just got to do it. And it's, uh, and it's again, these practices. And I think it connects back with, and I, and I love the last week's podcast on the, how to take a vacation because you talked about Sabbath. And one of the beautiful things about Sabbath or even a vacation is it's a recognition that the world is going to be okay without my activity because God ultimately has control. And I think sitting in silence is a subset of what Sabbath is. Because when I'm sitting in silence, I'm not doing anything. And it just lets God be God. And I think when God can be God, magic can happen in our lives. And perhaps that is the most important exercise that we're talking about today, 
is getting us back to that point where we're recognizing the God of the universe at work in our personal lives. And you're right, part of that is exercising demons. Part of it is allowing God. And when I say allowing God, I, I mean, uh, not that God needs our permission, but actually what I would say is allowing ourselves to listen to the voice of God. Because ultimately, you know, you, you talked about some of your best ideas. I mean, all ideas ultimately come from God. And why, what are we missing out on? And I think that that's, I think, and, and as I listen to feedback and some of my listeners, you know, some of my listeners, they're, they're stay-at-home moms, and they're going all day. Yes, hard. And it's hard. And trust me, I, I, I've now taken on some of the, uh, the dad life responsibilities because my wife's working. She, my wife has gone 55 hours a week now. I don't see my wife for 55 hours. I, I got to tell you, I didn't handle that crisis, that transition too well. I'm just perf- perfectly honest. I was a mess. That's like going from zero to 20 minutes of meditation all at the same time. Yeah, I, <laughs> it is. It's hard. But what I, you know, what, one of the things that kind of helped me get through that, I said, A, I'm in a transition. And B, I need to be certain that I'm keeping these disciplines. Because now more than ever, they're so critical and so crucial. So, um Thanks for, you know, thanks for sharing that piece of it, though. And thanks for being willing to, willing to come out onto the show and say, hey, you're facing some of your demons. Because I love that honesty, because you and I talked about the need for more honesty. And I think it's true. I think we all have demons inside of us. We all have pain. And, and, and this is a wonderful, natural way of just sort of allowing that to come out, giving yourself permission to do it. And then you, it's, a, it's a nice way of processing this. I mean, there's so much here, and we could go on and on and on. I think what we should do is we should kind of go through each of these. Uh, like we talked about silence, we can go back and do some more of that. But um, we should go through each of these at some point in the, sh- in, the, in the course of the show and kind of talk about these, because I think that all of these uh, really, really have some potential. So thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the show today. It's great to be here with you and Grace Nation. Well, thank you, Brian. And that brings us to the very end of this show. And thank you so much for listening to the show. Hey, listen, go to jonathangsmith.com forward slash GOF58. And there you're going to find all of the show notes. I'm going to put all of the um, uh, all of the stuff here. I'm also going to put Brian's liturgy here that he uses. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you today. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verve creative production. For show notes, updates, and more, visit jonathangsmith.com slash graceonfire.